find the Court of Miracles before daybreak. If Frollo gets there first, are you coming with me? I can't. I thought you were Esmeralda's friend. Frollo's my master. I can't disobey him again. She stood up for you. You've got a funny way of showing gratitude. Well, I'm not going to sit by and watch Frollo massacre innocent people. You do what you think is right. What? What am I supposed to do? Go out there and rescue the girl from the, from the jaws of death and the whole town will cheer like I'm some kind of a hero? She already has her knight in shining armor and it's not me. <sighs> Frollo was right. Frollo was right about everything. And I'm tired of trying to be something that I'm not. may seem in Congress to say an animated Disney film, especially one which opened during the glory renaissance 90s era days of The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, and Beauty and the Beast, came out of nowhere to surprise audiences. But that's precisely what happened with 1996's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. At first appalled at how the Mouse House would most likely bastardize into a kiddie flick, Victor Hugo's 1831 dark classic, which among many socio-political topics lined up in its sights, prejudice, religious hypocrisy, and sexual repression, those same original naysaying prognosticators became some of the film's biggest fans upon the animated musical drama's June 1996 release. Hell, I even remember Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel singing his praises as Disney's finest animated endeavor since the Best Picture-nominated Beauty and the Beast, and how they felt in some ways it even surpassed it. Now, while all films in general, and animated features in particular, are very much communal and team efforts, in a very real way, the first immovable creative pillar to drag across the artistic floor in turning Hugo's tale into a faithful yet family-friendly take fell alone to screenwriter, and as many learned in our last podcast episode, sometimes director, Tab Murphy. There was a published piece a couple of years back, and we've provided the link on our Movie Sneak Art 19 page, entitled How Classic Cartoons Created a Culturally Literate Generation. And it went into how the legendary Chuck Jones, Tex Avery, Tom and Jerry, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and other tunes of the early to mid-1900s were the first introductions which made an entire generation, well, actually a few generations, want to know and learn more about everything from Rossini, Liszt, and Jules Verne Robert Louis Stevenson, Ernest Hemingway, and John Huston. And if there's a modern-day equivalent to that, we've always felt it to be the animated features of screenwriter Tab Murphy. While certain films he scripted, such as Disney's Hunchback, Atlantis, and Tarzan, were inspired by, or were direct adaptations of, Hugo, Verne, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and others, his other work, most notably on the 2011 revival of TV's Thundercats, would very much introduce new generations to the thematics of everything and everyone, from Shakespeare, the Bible, and Kurosawa, to Sergio Leone, Tolkien, and beyond. In part one of our Beer Summit sit-down, 
we delved into Tab's involvement with live-action faves such as Gorillas in the Mist, Last of the Dogmen, and even Coming to America. And if there's such a thing as an even more fascinating road down which to travel, it's that which takes us into his role as one of the most popular in-demand animation writers of the day, which also includes his work on Superman Batman Apocalypse, Batman Year One, Teen Titans Go, and many others. The stories behind all of them best told from the mouth of the man himself. I'm Craig Jamison of Go Cottage Online, and welcome to an all-new edition of the Movie Sneak. Murphy's Law, Beer Summit Sit-Down Part 2, The Animated Classics of Tab Murphy. Not you personally, but your your culture. I mean, how did all of this end up down here? It is said that the gods became jealous of Atlantis. They sent a great cataclysm and banished us here. All I can remember is the sky going dark and people shouting and running. Then, bright light, like a star, floating above the city. My father said it called my mother to it. I never saw her again. I'm sorry. If, it, if it's any consolation, I, I know how you feel because I lost my... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, back up. We, we, what are you telling me? Do you remember because you were there? No, that's, that's impossible because, I mean, that would make you, you know, 85, 88, 100 years old. Yes. Oh, well, hey, uh, looking good. So, diving into the animated films, um... How in the world, how did you go from Gorillas in the Mist and Last of the Dogmen into one of the most, you know, one of the go-to guys in animation for the past, God, 20 years now? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't planned. Uh, It was not planned. In fact, uh, Craig, I resisted. uh, uh, I resisted it for quite some time. As the uh, financing, uh, you know, as as I was sort of pursuing getting Last of the Dogmen made, um, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Michael Eisner, those guys had all shifted over to Disney. And uh, Jeffrey, uh, you know, took over the animation division and, and, uh, and, and was, you know, trying to sort of redesign the way the movies were developed in 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 uh, in the anime in the animation division he really wanted to uh, have scripts written and bring he he really wanted to bring a sort of a live action sensibility to the development of material um he he was a big believer in the written word in a screenplay and so uh that's 
how I got an initial invitation because I had done, you know, my I started my career with Jeffrey at Paramount. Uh, so he, I was just one of probably many writers he reached out to through his executive to see if I'd be interested in coming in and and uh, talking about uh, writing something for Disney. Now, you know, in in those days, the the true renaissance of uh, of, of Disney's '90s animation hadn't was just getting off the ground. I think Little Mermaid had been released, but Beauty and the Beast had not as yet. Um, uh, in fact, you know, I, I had a friend, Don Hahn, who was a, a friend outside of, uh, of, of, of a working environment. We just had mutual friends, and I had met, and, he re- and I was living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming at the time. Uh, and he reached out to me to see if I would be willing to work on something they were working on called The Lion King. And I was, that almost came to fruition, but for whatever reason, it didn't. Um, but Don was like, ah, shoot, well, you know what, we're, we'll keep you in mind. we got other stuff, you know, we're, we're developing. And um, so I had moved back to L.A. Be- to really, you know, because Dogman was coming together. And... Um, and they were, st- they still were inquiring, you know, like come in and see what we're doing, have a meeting. Um, so, like I said, I resisted because I was, uh, in my mind, I was like, yeah, you know, I just, I don't really am not here to write cartoons for kids. That's what, that's what they were to me in my mind. Don't get me wrong, I grew up on Disney movies, I loved them, but I really, I, you know, in those days, I was like, I'm a serious filmmaker. I want to write, you know, I, and and work on adult you know movies my my all my favorite movies were from the set you know we talked about this deliverance mm-hmm. and Elm and you know those were the kinds of movies i wanted to write so i you know i have craig the dubious distinction of having turned down toy story <laughs> uh, and yes uh i will admit that freely now but um but you know you have to i mean in my defense the way it was put to me was that uh if you're interested, uh, we just acquired this little company uh, in mm-hmm. County. We're going to make the first computer-generated uh, uh, animated feature, and it's about a boy and his talking toys. And if you if you really are interested, and in, you have to commit to moving to Marin County for two years. That was how it was put to me. So, in it was an easy pass because yeah. I was trying to get a movie made and. But you know, you always wonder what if, what if. So, <laughs> uh, so, and I turned down a lot of a few other things too, and and uh, including Hercules and other things they were working on. Not because you know, I was you know like, like, uh, I was a hard sell. But I always have to be, um, you know, I, I want to love something I'm working on, and I just You're gonna be with it for a couple of years. Yeah. I just wasn't connecting with some of the things they were working on. Uh, but I did take a meeting because I finally got. Tom Berenger committed to star in Last of the Dogman, but he had like two movies to make ahead of mine. Uh, so I had to cool my heels for like six months, and I had to make money because I'm a I'm a blue collar screenwriter and I got bills to pay. So right. right around that time, Disney asked me to come in for a meeting, just to you know again to see if there was anything we could find together. I did go in, and at the end of that meeting, uh, they mentioned that they were trying to figure out if there was a movie in this book we we've been kind of interested in and that book turned out to be victor hugo's hunchback of notre dame so 
what they didn't realize, which I've already talked to you about, was that I grew up on all those horror movies, those old universal horror movies, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, I was just nuts for all that stuff. And in those days, in the 60s, The Hunchback of Notre Dame was kind of lumped in with those films. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, even though Quasimodo wasn't a monster. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was well aware of the Lon Chaney Sr., uh, you know, uh, Hunchback. I was well aware of Charles Lawton, Hunchback. Mm -hmm. And the Hunchback was an iconic character that I, that I really was familiar with. So when they mentioned that, it's just like, that was like a lightning bolt, man. I didn't even hesitate. I said, I'm in. Let's, uh, yes, of course. Good work, Captain. Now arrest her. Claim sanctuary. Say it. You tricked me. I'm waiting, Captain. I'm sorry, sir. She claims sanctuary. There's nothing I can do. Then drag her outside and... Frodo, you will not touch her. Don't worry. Minister Frodo learned years ago to respect the sanctity of the church. All right, all right. You think you've outwitted me, but I'm a patient man, and gypsies don't do well inside stone walls. What are you doing? I was just imagining a rope around that beautiful neck. I know what you were imagining. Such a clever witch. So typical of your kind to twist the truth, to cloud the mind with unholy thoughts. Well, no matter. You've chosen a magnificent prison, but it is a prison nonetheless. Set one foot outside, and you're mine. And initially, um, uh, my concern that they wanted to turn this, you know, really, you know, incredible piece of literature that was very adult-themed... Yeah. You know, into a kids movie with singing right, fancy right. characters. I was like, so let me just ask, what you're, what are you guys wrapping your head around here? Because I'm not sure that's, you know. But in their defense, in Disney's defense, they were very well aware of the adult themes, and they mm -hmm. encouraged me to explore those. Yeah, uh, which is pretty, 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 pretty amazing aspect of that film. Well, it really is, and I, you know, I've told people that I don't think that movie could get made today in this climate. I don't think Disney would pull the trigger on that movie today. Certainly not an also, animated it, They film. were no really, way. yeah, and it, it, but, you know, it was just, again, the sort of the, the, the zeitgeist of the time and the place, and and uh, Kirk and Gary were just about to release Beauty and the Beast, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, that was a time when uh you know uh, once it was released and nominated for best picture every studio in town took up sat up and took notes mm. i mean mm -hmm. and those movies were just making tons of money man yeah um and so it just and 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 i think they wanted to try to you know just do something different and uh so i was you know naturally i was a little concerned about well you know how i kind of approach the material and and you know obviously it's a disney film it has to connect somehow to their core audience mm -hmm. um but how do i deal with these adult themes in a way i mean i didn't know if, if it's too much is it not enough i mean 
So they were really cool, man. They just were like, listen, you write what you want to write, and mm-hmm. let us worry about that. If it's too much, we can always pull it back. But mm-hmm. you just go for it, and uh, and don't be too concerned about that at this stage. So though that was, you know, like music to my ears, because it allowed nice. me to... To really just you know try to create a character in Quasimodo that you know that was a Disney character, but set against uh, you know a, a lot of story elements that were you know like pushing the envelope for a Disney film, mm-hmm. and that was cool. I really I had a great time you know w- working on that film and and still you know I mean initially the process was you know. Is there a movie here? Because Disney has a lot of, you know, boxes that have to be checked off on material right. before they pull the trigger on an animated movie. And they, um, and there were some boxes that uh, weren't checked in their mind. And they were just like, eh, we're not sure. So my job really initially was to find the movie. If, if there was okay. one, if there was going to be one, what was it going to look like? How was it going to be a Disney movie, etc.? So, and that... Uh, and that really, I mean, you know, I think initially the idea, what it sort of, I, it finally came to me like, uh, you know, because, I mean, let's face it, that this character lives up in a bell tower, in a gloomy bell tower, and he's being kept there, and he's sheltered, and he's, uh, you know, he's childlike, and, and, uh, and it's dark and dismal, and, you know, there's not a lot of hope, and so mm. how do you create something magical and colorful and, you know, amazing out of out of that situation. So I think the thing that really cracked it was the idea that uh, I just kept thinking about this idea that, well, maybe that colorful, creative, magical world is in his head. Maybe that's... I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's a fantasy world that he lives in most of the time. That Like with the talking him. gargoyles. And yes, yeah. exactly. So that gave rise to the talking... Go- it gave rise to him being able to converse with things, to being able... It was just an extension of some ideas in the book, but just manifested, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just manifested them. And and I think uh, that really pushed it over the top. And I and I, so I, I went away and I wrote like a... I think I wrote like a 25 or 30-page treatment and mm-hmm. turned it in. And Jeffrey called me like at home and said, this is fucking great. I'm going to green light the movie right off this treatment. Nice. You know, so that was really like, wow, that was that was a great feeling. And and then I worked subsequently on on that movie with uh, Kirk and Gary and Don and, and and artists and everything. I'd never had that experience, Craig. And so I was on that movie for about a year. Then I have to I had to go off and make Last of the Dogmen. So I had to mm-hmm. segue into going off and making my movie. But I had a great time. I mean, I, it was just so much fun creatively and every other which way. Um, so that's why I kept going back to the well. I mean, you know, I finished Hunchback. Uh, Jeffrey asked me to do Tarzan, which initially was going to be, believe it or not, a direct-to-DVD movie. Wow. Uh, it was in their sort of DVD section. And he said, look, I know it's not a big theatrical movie. It's kind of a step down, but I'd love you to do it. And, and uh, look, I was like, I'm thrilled to do it because uh, Tarzan's a great character. I, I yeah. get him, <laughs> you know. That's, so I, you know, how often am I going to get a chance to, to to work on something like that? And so, uh, and then luckily, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I based on I think uh, a treatment I wrote, and you know, the pr- 
pressure from the directors, uh, I, it was determined that this could be a big, big movie. So they, it, it, it ultimately shifted over to the Disney feature animation and became mm-hmm. what it became. So the, I felt very fortunate to be a part of that, that project and that process. And then, of course, I went on to Atlantis. I want you to meet Commander Rourke. He led the Iceland team that brought the journal back. Milo Thatch. Pleasure to meet the grandson of old Thaddeus. See you got that journal. Nice pictures, but I prefer a good western myself. Pretty impressive, eh? Boy, when you settle a bet, you, you settle a bet. Well, your granddad always believed you couldn't put a price on the pursuit of knowledge. Well, uh, believe me, this will be small change compared to the value of what we're going to learn on this trip. Yes, this should be enriching for all of us. Attention all Mr. Whitmore, it's time. Bye, Mr. Whitmore. Make us proud, boys. Lieutenant, take her down. Diving officer, submerge the ship. Make her death one five zero feet. Basically, Kirk and Gary, after they finished, uh, and Don, after they finished Hunchback, you know, the, they work so hard, two, three years on a movie like that, and they become a family, they become a team, mm-hmm. creative team. They wanted to keep that team together, and so they were, like, looking for their next project, and 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 I wanted to write it for them, and, uh, you know, they had just, they'd done uh, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback, so they... They had, a, you know, they were given some free reign about what they wanted to do next. And what they wanted to do next was a sort of boy's own adventure mm. that harkened back to some of the uh, great sort of Disney films, live action films of the, you know, the 50s and the 60s that we all grew up on. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, other films like Journey to the Center of the Earth and things like that. So we we all went out one day uh, for lunch. and. Uh, <laughs> And, and I had actually brought them, uh, you know, a crazy idea. This is, again, these are just little things that come up. But I had been thinking, you know, because I had been to Disneyland recently and done the Pirates of the Caribbean. So I came right. to them and said, why don't we do an animated version of Pirates of the Caribbean? You know, <laughs> use the elements from the ride and construct a story and we can blah, 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 blah. And they thought, wow, that's kind of a cool idea. So they ran that up the flagpole only to find out that, it was already in development as a live wow. movie, right? <laughs> Which we all know what it became, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we were kind of nixed on that front. So that's when we went out and had uh, lunch at a Mexican restaurant here in Burbank, and we sat around. We just talked about the movies we loved as, as boys growing up. And so we came away from that lunch knowing we wanted to tell a story about uh, explorers going into the earth and discovering dot, 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 something. I don't think mm-hmm. we even ha- I mean, Atlantis was a possibility. There were other things, you know. But, again, that lost civilization thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so that was the, that, that was really the germ of what became Atlantis, the Lost Empire. So I went away. I wrote a treatment that was a total, <laughs> a total misfire, dude. Just mm. a total misfire. Because I, I picked Atlantis. And I had explorers going into the sea, and it's this weird kind of 1914 submarine and getting mm-hmm. taken into Atlantis, which had a big dome over it like Aquaman. You know, they all lived right. in the sea. I had big battles with these guys on the back of great white sharks and all this shit going on, man. And they 
read it, and they, they, they came down and said, well, it's kind of cool, but this isn't what we wanted. We wanted okay. going into the earth and discovering okay. something. You know, uh-huh. like Journey to the Center of the Earth. Arnie right. Sack Newsome. Come on, where's Arnie? Uh, right, so, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, I guess I just had to get that out of my head. Which, out of your system, right. Yeah, which some writers have to do. They just they have a, yeah. a vision, and they just have to purge it, right? So, yeah, yeah. So I went back, and literally, I think it, within three or four days, I turned in the first five pages of, of, where, of a direction I was going to take with them. And they loved it, and it, and uh, and then that ended up being another big treatment. But uh, you know that was Atlantis. That was really the shape of the movie that it became. And and once again, we were off to the races. Uh, so that was cool. That was a lot of fun. Now I have to say that um, uh, I guess just sing a little praise for uh, Kirk Wise and Gary Trosdale. They for me became heroes, and they earned a seat in heaven forever when they did the great mouse detective <laughs> oh listen those guys they're the greatest they i had you know I, I had they were just terrific collaborators but i would go into meetings with them you know and they would we would be like brainstorming ideas uh let's say on atlantis those meetings would you know we they would be set for an hour we would laugh for like 45 minutes <laughs> shit and then we get down to business you know i mean <laughs> right, right. like we had so much fun man it was so much fun and they were just great guys and they were very smart you know I, one story i heard uh which i'll just pass along uh which is you know everybody knows that sort of uh, uh iconic scene in toy story where uh i think it's woody gets uh, trapped inside the you know, the claw, you know, with all those little mm-hmm. yeah. eyes, you know, the <laughs> right, right, you, you know, and the, and the claw comes down and picks one up. The claw, the claw, right, right, right. I'm going to a better place. You know? <laughs> well, that that was Gary. I mean, they oh, cool. they had called a meeting of all Disney creatives in on Toy Story to, to kind of pitch ideas for this section, the pizza mm-hmm. haven or whatever it was called, pizza you know uh that mm-hmm. section of that story and it was gary who came up with the claw and you know and and all of that stuff uh in, on the spot in the meeting you know so that kind of stuff went on all the time wow and, you know so being in a room where the the creative synergy was just free expression nothing was too stupid we laughed at most of it but you know, all of these things, you know, we would eventually get nuggets out that we would use. And, and again, Gary, you know, he, you know, we had a completely different opening for Atlantis. In fact, they, mm-hmm. they animated it, it, they scored it, everything. And if you go, if you do have the DVD of Atlantis, yes. they've included it as an extra. You can watch it. It opened on a Viking ship. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Well, um, it was very cool, and I thought, oh, this is a cool opening, and we see this thing destroyed, and the shepherd's journey right. is left floating on the, you know, and that was the opening we went with for so long, obviously, but, because it was animated, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But then uh, I can't remember if uh, which who the the guy, the head of story was on Atlantis came in, and great guy, too, uh, uh, eventually came in and said, guys, you know, sometimes I make suggestions that are great, and sometimes... I make suggestions where I know you're going to want to kill me. He said, I'm going to make one now where you're going to want to kill me. And he basically said, I think, you know, we have a great opening, but I, it's not, we don't know any, we, it, it doesn't have Atlantis. I mean, we, we're making a movie called Atlantis, the Lost Empire. 
it it doesn't open in Atlantis. We don't. It we these are not characters we're ever going to see again. Blah 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 mm. blah. He made a case for a new opening. He didn't have that opening. He didn't know what, but he felt like it should be Atlantis, maybe, or the destruction of Atlantis, or mm-hmm. something that would set up the mythology better for the story. So yeah, Gary, he was right. He was right. Gary, everybody was like, "Well, we hate that fucking idea." <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. But they all went away kind of downcast because, they, you know, you do you work hard and you think yeah. you've got an opening and then somebody comes in and like, you know, and but most of the reason you feel terrible is that you realize you're hearing the truth. Yep. And you've got to wrap your head around that, man. And you and so Gary went home and literally at dinner got inspired and doodled a bunch of images on napkins, dude, and brought them in the next day spread them out on the table from what this is the kind of the mythology that's built up around this and there they were the images for the opening and 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 that's where that's how it and then they, then everybody was on board we can see it yeah. we get it we can introduce mm-hmm. the little girl that becomes Kita. yes you can introduce certain things that uh, visually we'll see later in the movie so there was mm-hmm. connective tissue right from the get-go you know um but yeah I love the Viking opening, and I'm glad it's on the DVD because it was really cool. You know, but it from a star- storytelling standpoint, it 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 didn't serve the movie as well as the opening that now that the movie has now. Mm-hmm. Now I have to say that in general, um, obviously all the animated films have their own identity, their own soul, their own tone. Sure. But one of the things I love, uh, like I said, first. Um, when I first heard about Hunchback and I heard that, you know, the same guys who had done the great mouse detective, uh, were working with the guy who had done Lance of the Dogman, I was like, shit, I'm there. <laughs> you know? The movie could suck, but I'm there. And thank goodness well, it didn't suck. I'm just but oh, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that you even knew <laughs> that stuff in those days. <laughs> that stuff. Because, I mean, you know, I was working uh, you know, like in those days, I'm just working, and I'm like, I don't think that anybody knows anything about what I'm doing. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. like trying to, you know, get my career. I'm not even trying to get my. I'm just working. I'm having fun, and you know, I don't think about people being interested in what we're doing, I'm doing, or anything. So that's that's really funny, funny to hear, actually, on some level. Cool. I remember Robert Zemeckis once uh, in, in an article had um, it might have been American, the old American Film Magazine, where he had uh, talked about family films and he said for the longest time the phrase family film became a downer because it automatically was synonymous with Disney kitty film Her- Herbie goes to Monte Carlo sure, or whatever sure, sure. but he said in actuality a family film should be a film that every member of the family including adults can really get into and I felt that the films you did at Disney f- fell into that category that they had something that the kids would enjoy, you know, the talking gargoyles. But on another level, when I first saw the talking gargoyles, I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty deep. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, it's an extension of what, uh, it's a large extension of something that, that was in the original book. But there's some psychologically deep shit going on there with him oh, talking to the gargoyles. And then as soon as Frollo comes in, he doesn't see it. No, exactly. It, it, well, does he not see it because they're not moving? Or does he not see it because... They're just in, you know, uh, Quasimodo's head. So, yeah, there, there's some deep stuff going on there. And I saw some of that with Atlantis. You know, definitely the whole um, uh, encroaching, the whole colonialism aspect. I don't want to you know, get into political shit. But, but there was just a lot going on. And uh, 
right down to um, kind of keep uh, I keep forgetting her name. Um, the older woman, the communications expert, oh. just chain smoking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and just talking oh, over yeah. Lily Tomlin we, and laughing. So much fun creating those characters, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I you know initially created a bunch, and then we talked about some, and we came up with some other ones. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was fun. I just would uh, just backing up to Hunchback for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, let's talk about Claude Frollo. I mean, okay. look look yeah. at what that character is about in a Disney film. I mean, Ooh. you know that sequence where he you know singing that song Hellfire, and the animation you know that the choices they made to sort of like illustrate his anguish at. Uh, you know, and that this 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 burning desire he has for this nubile young gypsy, and and how it's just, you know, it's almost like he's you know like you know like uh, whipping himself uh, mm. for it. You know, um, it's uh, that was. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. When um, you know uh, Mencken and Schwartz were doing the music, of course, uh, and they would send in you know because this was the 90s they would send in cassettes to the directors and the producer to listen to uh when they would finish a song and it would usually be you know uh, uh making on on uh, uh piano and and schwartz singing or are they both sing parts or whatever so you know primitive but you got the you got the mm-hmm. you know let not primitive because it's making and schwartz but you got the right. sense you got the... the 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 song would be and so I was in I was in a meeting with those guys when they got a you know a FedEx package with a cassette in it and it was the song for Hellfire. Mm-hmm. So we were and they we were you know they were very excited about it because this was you know this was a very sort of like this was like the darkest sequence of the movie and it, mm-hmm. it you know knew it had to sort of like you know everybody was anticipating what it could be or what it was going to be and how much they could p- push the envelope etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So we all retired to, I don't know, I think it was, maybe it was Don's office or Kirk's, I can't remember specifically, but so, at, and in that office, we all sat together and we put the cassette, you know, in the little tape player and mm-hmm. and press play, and so here comes Hellfire. And we're listening, we're listening, and we're listening, and I start looking around, you know, and I'm like, fuck, <laughs> this, this is pretty intense, you know. Uh, and so at the end of it, um, Kirk, I re- I'll never forget this. He clicked off the recorder, and he sat back and he looked at it all, and he said, "Well, that's never going to make it in the movie." <laughs> <laughs> wow! Yeah, and it did. And that yeah. again, once again, I think that's a testament to to Disney's willingness to explore thematically this material in a way that they wouldn't be, you know, sort of like held up and vilified for taking a great piece of literature and just turning it into a standard kids film. They really were, you know, they really wanted to include as much as they could, obviously. Uh, they had parameters, but they really, they didn't shy away from the, the more adult-themed aspects of that, of, that, uh, of that story, which is to their credit, you know. Good check. I saved him from Sabor. Carla, it won't replace the one we lost. I know that, but he needs me. Uh, but it, it... Carla, look at it. It's not our kind. No, 
You have to take it back. Take him back? But he'll die. If the jungle wants him, then... I want him. Gala, I cannot let you put our family in danger. Does he look dangerous to you? Was it alone? Yes. Sabor killed his family. Are you sure? Yes. There are no others. <sighs> then you may keep him. Kerchak, I know he'll be a good son. I said he could stay. That doesn't make him my son. We will nest here for the night. gonna call it I'm gonna call him Tarzan A classic novel has been simplified and put to song in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the latest Disney animated feature, and the result is a quite affecting story arguing for both tolerance of individuals and of a whole people who have been demonized for centuries. Disney's Hunchback, confined since birth to the cathedral by an evil judge, is comforted by three gargoyles who try to bring a little cheer into his sad life. Hey, 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 what gives? Aren't you going to watch the festival with us? I don't get it. Perhaps he's sick. Impossible. If 20 years of listening to you two hasn't made him sick by now, nothing will. Thumbs up for me. Oh, thumbs way up for me, Gene. I love this movie, and I don't think just for older children, because although it does I have serious subjects yeah. in it that they'll identify with... I was talking about 10 and up, 8 and up, okay, something fine, like yeah. that. There are just great visuals in this film. Yeah. The, the animation of Quasimodo as he clambers up and down that facade of Notre Dame. The Overhead shot of the people. Oh, the, yes. The catacombs underneath Paris where the gypsies have their secret headquarters. Right. The dance sequence uh, involving Esmeralda. This is the best animated, the best written, the best thought through, uh, and the best sung Disney picture since The Beauty and the Beast. I, was, I liked I it better. I was a little bit uh, you know, I, I enjoyed uh, Pocahontas and Aladdin without being ecstatic about them. This is first rate. This is one of the best films of the year. It's really good. If we went into detail about all the animated uh, material you worked on, <laughs> we'd be here for the rest of the week. <laughs> but, uh... Uh, yeah, well, the old adage, work begets work, kind of uh, explains why I continue to work in animation. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Disney films, um, you know, for better, for worse, you know, were so successful in those in that run in the 90s that I think uh, a lot of people in Hollywood started to equate me as, a, as an animation writer. Yeah, when yeah. When the truth is, I really, you know, I, my, live action was always my first love, and I had, you know, so it, it, as, as these things do happen, uh, most of the, the work that was offered me uh, started to be animation and uh, y you know the live action stuff uh, you know I, I tr tried to keep afloat as much as I could but you know I just kept getting you know sometimes you go where the you, you know 
where the work is. Uh, yeah. And in those days, you know, I was raising a family and all those things, and so I didn't have the luxury of being, you know, single and footloose and fancy free and being able to eat craft mac and cheese while I thumb my nose at animation. <laughs> right. Continued to try to, you know, develop a directing, uh, writing career in live action. So, you know, there are a lot of things that, you know, that that influence and, and inform someone's choices about what they choose to do, and so certainly that was uh, that was mine. So, I mean, during the 2000s, uh, uh, so many things you worked on. Uh, Superman, Batman, Apocalypse, Batman Year One, Teen Titans Go, but uh, Brother Bear, you know. But um, I guess I guess um, focusing, though, on two of what to me, which would be two of the highlights, you know, not that the other stuff wasn't great, but certainly two of the highlights there would be 1999's Tarzan and uh, 2011 uh, uh, revamp of Thundercats. Thundercats. Thundercats, yeah, oh! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I guess if we can just do a, you know, just maybe since we've been talking about the Disney stuff for, you know, a while, if we can just do a quick Reader's Digest capsule of Tarzan and then, you know, maybe end with going into detail with Thundercats. I mean, with sure. Tarzan, I again, almost like with Hunchback, I was very much impressed with how, Maybe even more so because there were so many Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan stories to cull material from. But I was yeah. always impressed with the fact that I guess while you, as you said, checked those Disney boxes, I was amazed at how it still remained faithful in spirit, in DNA to the Burroughs original. I mean, there were some changes like, you know, m- making Kerchak a non antagonist or non villain, so to speak. But right. he's still an imposing figure. You know, he still has that Kerchak DNA, if you will. Um, Not to mention he was voiced by... One Lance Hendrickson. Yeah, which is one of so the greatest cool. <laughs> voices, you know, for, for intimidation you could possibly find. Absolutely, man. So, if you'd just give us such a quick overview, and from what I understand, if I'm correct, uh, your original third act uh, kind of did what Burroughs did, which was to take the character back to England. It did, was that it okay? did. Yeah, and, but we realized quickly that the the bread and butter, uh, the real gold of that story was keeping uh, 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 was, was Tarzan's relationship with the 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 gorillas, keeping him in the jungle, um, and that's you know that decision was made pretty early on, you know. So I you know that would and and that was fine, you know. I I. You know, I didn't really need to see Tarzan in England dressed up in clothes and trying to fit in. Because it's really, ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, this was a story about family. This was a story about an outsider who is welcomed into a family, who grows up in that family, and whose world is suddenly, you know, sort of like jolted by an appearance of other others that look like him and the, the realization that he actually belongs to some some other you know some other quote family um but so it it it, you know it really you know i mean when you really sort of break it down we were dealing with a lot of thematics that people could relate to like whether it was adoption or this or that um but ultimately uh i think it was the right call to keep it in the jungle and we just created a conflict that you know that that worked for for keeping it in the jungle and yeah i was i was listen i was 
thrilled. The, uh, of all the ones I worked on, I, I probably, you know, was least connected to the production of Tarzan because I had to go off and write Atlantis. Uh, so my time uh, with Tarzan and working with Kevin and Chris and those guys was somewhat more limited than I, you know, than I enjoyed and experienced on other productions. Um, I don't, I can't even, I did a couple treatments, I did a couple drafts of the script, then I really had to jump off and, and they brought uh, Bob and Noni on who had worked on Hunchback uh, to sort of like, I really feel like, you know, I, I laid a pretty solid structural foundation and, and, a, and you know, and a, and a story arc and a character arc for, but, but a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the gold in that movie was, uh, you know, was, was, was brought on by, you know, you know, was brought to the table by Bob and Noni's work, by Kevin and Chris's work, by the head of story, um, his, his, he, they had a terrific head of story and, you know, like those, those, those movies, those you're on them for two, three years, and so that gives you a lot of time to to really tear apart the story and find. But uh, you know, I always loved, you know, like the the great example I give, you know, as a writer, you know, uh, working on an animated feature is like uh, in Tarzan. Uh, there's a scene where Jane goes into the jungle early on, and she meets up with a you know little monkey that. She's playing around with a little bit, and then one thing leads to another, and the monkey, monkey starts crying. And you know, I wrote that scene, and in that scene, uh, Jane looks up and sees the monkey's mother glaring down at her, and she sort of says, "Oh, oh, I'm so sorry," and backs out. Of, and and that was the end of the scene. Hmm. You know, that for me as a writer, that was the end of my scene, and I moved on to other. You know, it was just kind of ended on a little funny note. Well, and this is the beauty. This is what I want to talk about, what, you know, the animators and bring to the table. Because they took the nugget of that idea and they turned that into that whole big chase sequence. Yeah, with where he steals the... the <laughs> which was just amazing, you know. So, I one of the reasons, honestly, I loved working in, uh, in these movies and writing animation because those guys those fucking women and men made me look so great <laughs> you know they really did they just uh, you know they just would take things and and but they also add things in that movie and scenes that you could never write in a screenplay yeah. you know you just couldn't craig I mean, your screenplay would be 200 pages long if you wrote every detail in every scene you know uh, so that was the most fun of, you know, seeing my words that that inspired uh, additional creativity that they brought to bear on the movie that turned it into just something magical. So I had been off that movie for a long time. When I went to the premiere, I was just as knocked out by the movie as everybody else was. Cool. I mean, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> awesome. Really good. Really good. I mean, they took some they took what was an OK script and they worked on it for two and a half further years, and they turned it into just man something. I was just at that point just proud to be a part of it. Wow. You know, cool. Yeah. Well, I, I have to imagine, and I guess there's a nice bridge into Thundercats. Uh, we were talking about someone like Lance Henriksen. Uh, it's got to be a thrill um, seeing stuff that you worked on being voiced by people like Glenn Coast, Lance Henriksen, James Garner. Uh, um, um, oh, yeah. Jim Varney, Michael J. Fox, I mean, on and on and on and on. And going into Thundercats, it's kind of funny because while I 
enjoyed the original version of Thundercats. Um, I guess maybe to a certain degree, I was a little too old to really get into it. Uh, yeah. Like my nephews and, and, and others did. But sure. the 2011 version, which eventually on Cartoon Network, they started airing on Adult Swim at night. Yeah. You know? uh, so once again, I really appreciated the fact that with the 2011 version that you were involved in, that uh, watching them, binging them is almost like sitting down and watching all the Lord of the Rings films back to back, <laughs> you know, uh, it's like that sprawling kind of a story, but, um, and the voice cast, I mean, freaking Clancy Brown, man, that, that, that's oh, like getting Lance Henriksen to, 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 to do lines. Yeah. And then in other episodes, you know, guest vocals, vocals by people like Hector Elizondo and Richard Chamberlain and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, no, there's no question. I had a great time on that series and I, I'll, I'll just tell you a little secret. I'd never seen Thundercats. Never. I'd never seen one episode. I did want to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, when, I'd been, when I got hired to write them. But that came about because I had done, uh, you know, I'd been working off and on over at Warner Anna, uh, Brothers Animation. I had done, um, uh, you know, a Batman, a Superman Apocalypse. I'd done Batman Year One. I had also written a couple others that didn't get made for whatever reason. So I had a, you know, a presence over there. And uh, and I can't remember if, if Michael Jelenic is a terrific guy who was who, like was working over there at the time and, and running a lot of these shows. And he was tasked with setting up Thundercats, hiring writers and, and show running it, essentially, um, and producing it uh, together with his partner, Ethan Spaulding. Yeah, I think is his name. Uh, anyway, great guys. Terrific. They had just, you know, were familiar with my work, and they invited me to come in for a meeting to see if I'd be interested in working on the show. And so I sat down with them, and I had a great meeting, and, and uh, they told me a little bit about what they were trying to do in the world of the Thundercats, and they gave me a few episodes, older episodes to watch, but they didn't want me to spend too much time back there because they wanted something different, something new, something a little edgier, you know, I guess, if you will. That's... You know, an old phrase these days, but they just wanted it, you know, uh, to be, uh, you know, it's it's its own, you know, kind of its own beast. Let me show you what it's capable of in the proper hands. Uh-oh. Catch! The book told that it was the Thundercats, our ancestors, who first defeated Mumra. It was the Thundercats who brought law and order to a world of warring animals. And it is now the Thundercats who are strong enough to maintain this fragile peace. That's really how it began, and I, you know, I wrote the first episode that they wanted me to write. They really liked it, and that, again, just again, the old adage, "Work begets work." And so, in you know, in television or you know, like a series television, you know, I think there's a because it's so hard, and you know, the pressures of you know getting episodes done and and and, and polished and. Re you know, rewritten, and if they don't come in close uh, to the bullseye, that means that the showrunner, Michael, 
and his partner, they are the ones that have to rewrite it, have to make it work uh-huh. and all that stuff. So, so when you can make their life easier, they make your life easier by hiring you to do a lot of episodes. So that's mm-hmm. essentially what happened. You know, I wrote, I can't remember, you know, there were, you know, like, I think I wrote eight or nine episodes of yeah. the yeah. first. Of the original, it's like 26 of that season. Yeah, there was, they call it two seasons worth, but the truth is that was one season. I wrote like nine of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I was the only writer that had sort of multiple episodes like that. Uh, yeah. That many, anyway. But, uh, you know, I, I like to, you know, I, I really dug the mythology. I got the characters. So I think that was just like, you know, oh, this, you know... <laughs> One guy, one guy, you know, for whatever reason, left early in the midst of writing an episode, and they called him, let, let Tab do it, you know, so I <laughs> I ended up writing that, and, you know, but I, I really enjoyed going in, and, and we would spitball episodes, and they would have the germ of an idea, I really loved the creative process of sitting around trying to figure it out, that's how, you know, The Duelist and The Drifter came about, that's how mm-hmm. some of the other episodes came about, I really enjoyed the one-off episodes, because yeah, like we, awesome. you know, I think we talked a little bit about this, like Native Son, because you could explore, you know, relationships and 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 you weren't beholden to have having to also con, you know continue threads of an ongoing storyline in your episode. Mm-hmm. It could be a self-contained episode. I loved doing those. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. doing those because they were, you know, they could be offbeat. They could be, you know, they were always like there was a trajectory for the episodes and there was a path they traveled. But I always loved the ability for them to take a left turn in an episode and just do something off to the off the beaten path, and so I, re- I really responded to those episodes, you know. Well, going back to uh, what we grew up on again, those '60s TV series sure. and or '70s TV series, some of my favorites have always been like you know the Rat Patrol, It Takes a Thief, um, and then later, obviously in the '80s and '90s, you could get into the X Files. But I always loved how. You know the original Wild Wild West and what have you. How yeah, you had an overall arc to the series. I guess even the original Hawaii Five O, and you even had recurring characters. Like in Hawaii Five O, you would have the character Wofat, in uh, who would come back every few episodes. Yeah. In the Wild Wild West, you would have Doctor Loveless, who would yeah. come back every few episodes. So there was a certain arc going on, but they left plenty of room to do some really really great one-offs. Exactly. They were not locked into the serial continue next week, continue next week, continue next week, we could go off and do this thing like one of my favorite Rat Patrol episodes is one where, uh, you know, you have Dietrich portrayed by uh, Eric Braden, back then known as Hans Gudgast, <laughs> and he's leading the German guys, and then you have uh, Christopher George and the American guys, they're in the desert, and this Arab kid falls down a well, and they kind of have to put their war on hold yes. for that episode yeah. to work together to get the kid out of the well, you know, so those kind of episodes... The ones that you wrote in Thundercats reminded me of those kinds of episodes oh. where you would take a, you would veer off just for this during their journey to veer off into something that would focus on their characterizations and then the next episode we get back to our war or whatever yes, you know? exactly the overall yeah you know the, 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 the you know trying to defeat the villain and find the whatever they were looking for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah no no I that's why I I I always beg to do the one-offs because nice. I could really explore you know things that I was interested in with you know as well. I mean, Native Son is a prime example. Or that's really a father-son story, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, for those who may not be familiar, can you just give us a quick uh, overview of that episode? 
That's an episode where uh, Lion and Tigra are, are. It opens with them trying to find a passage through a, a snowy pass, uh, and you know you kind of set up the the, the playfulness of Lionel towards his stepbrother and and uh, they, they their relationship, and then they are they stumble upon again, uh, you know. This thematically goes back to Last of the Dogmen, Atlantis, the mm-hmm. Lost Empire, but they stumble upon, uh, you know, remnants of T- Tigra's clan and uh, what they don't realize. And, and so Tigra is welcomed home as the, 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 the returning, you know, prodigal son. And he believes, oh, my God, I've, my, my, I've met my father. This is where I belong, etc., etc. But there's a insidious little secret that you know is revealed ultimately in the episode uh with very quickly without having to explain it too much at night all the all the members of this clan including his father turn into these murderous monsters Mm. and uh so you know it get toward the end it kind of gets emotional because they really need to be released from this curse but in so releasing them they 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 move on to the next realm. In other words, die or can pass over pass over into another you know dimension, and so he has to release his father and then say goodbye to him at the same time. And and you know it's anyway. It was a it's the it's the kind of thing you don't expect to be writing in a yes. half hour episode, dude. Exactly. So that was that well, was the best part of it, you know. Well, it's kind of interesting. Once again, uh, going back to that Robert Zemeckis thing where uh, family, well, family series, I guess in this case, it's not a family film. Um, I remember when I was um, re-watching all these episodes uh, before we uh, sat down into our podcast here. Um, I was re-watching them, and uh, my mother happened by one day, and while I was watching them, and she said, hey, I remember these, because she would watch them with my nephews years ago. And there, there were times where she would be babysitting them, and she said that was one of the few shows that she could actually stand <laughs> to watch ah. herself, that the kids were watching. And part of it was because of those characters and because of some of the more adult themes. And uh, there's a line in the movie Parenthood where Rick Moranis says, you know, so often we treat kids like adorable little morons, and they're not. And... One of the things I like about the animation that you've worked on, the animated series and film that you've worked on, is they don't do that. You know, yeah, there are certain boxes to check, but they have some pretty sophisticated themes that if the kids don't pick up on all of them, you know, years later they will, and they will be appreciative of that. Right. But I do think that um, kids pick up on a lot more thematically than a lot of filmmakers give them credit for. Um, I totally agree. I totally agree. You know. Yeah. Uh, years ago, when I worked in a video store, I was amazed at how certain how certain films were popular uh, with kids. One of them would be uh, Fred Chappie's Iceman, for God's sake. <laughs> kids would come in and say, oh, oh, Iceman. And I'm like, how in the, why would these kids be so fascinated about this film, which is all about character, yep. uh, not special effects, not action. But I think it was the whole idea of just him being a man out of time, a man out of place, someone who just felt like an outsider. And he doesn't even speak in English. Yeah. But I think that anybody can relate to that. And the same thing with Quasimodo in, in, in Hunchback. Oh, listen, I've got a, I, I, I have a great story for you, quickly, mm. about that. And that is that, uh, you know, a, a month or so back, I was in a bar with uh, my girlfriend. 
and we were having a drink. I got up to go to the restroom, and uh, she overheard a couple of guys talking, you know, next to her, and they were talking about the Hunchback, and one of them was just going on and on about that movie changed my life, blah blah blah. That movie, <laughs> love that film. So I'm walking back from the restroom toward her, and I see her reach over and tap some guy on the shoulder, and like, what are you doing? You know, and, <laughs> right, and get us said, involved and in a brawl said, here. Yeah, you guys are talking about the Hunchback, and and they were like, and the guy turned her, yes, yes, well, I love that film, you know, and, and he's in his you know early mid twenties, right, and uh, and she goes, well, this guy right here, as I walked up, he wrote it. <laughs> You should have seen that guy. His eyes got, I mean, he just went out of his mind, dude. But he, I had to sit down and he had to tell me. I mean, you know, it was important for him to tell me how important that movie was for him at a particular time in his childhood when he felt alone, lonely, like an outsider, that he didn't have friends, that he didn't fit in. And he said that character in that movie gave him hope, you know. And that was like, wow, I was like, and, and, you know, I think it's easy for, or for me anyway, that, you know, you work on things and you move on and you're proud of the work and, but you don't necessarily have a complete understanding of, of, in the case of the Disney films, for instance, what kind of an effect they may have had, you know, on, on young people, you know, at, at that time in their development in their lives. And it, it re- some of that, that that really hit home when he when he was talking to me about that, and just you know, wow, I I just felt so proud that I was a part of that process for him, and and that that movie spoke to him at a time in his life uh, where it, it 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 acted as kind of a you know like this bridge uh, to a to the to the brighter light of adulthood that he was going to be okay, you know. Well, you know, it's kind of neat. Uh, I guess maybe uh, a neat little summation uh, to, the, to, to the whole conversation here. And that point that you brought up, uh, comedian, I remember years ago, comedian Gray Geraldo, uh, whom I loved. I, I, I was so bummed when he passed away. He was so young. Yeah. I remember watching <laughs> a stand-up thing on Comedy Central one night, and he was uh, talking about how he was walking through the streets of New York, and he was passing this construction site, and there were all these big guys, you know, with the hats and the vests and, you know, the j- jackhammering up the sidewalk and everything. And he just overheard this conversation. These two guys were loudly debating, and one of them just said, No! Hakuna Matata, motherfucker! From the motherfucking Lion King! (laughs) And he was like, What in the world could have preceded? What conversation were they involved in that could have preceded that climactic outburst of Hakuna Matata? How did they even get on that topic? You know, and just describing the Lion King that way. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's kind of funny when you mentioned that hunchback story it almost fills in the blanks for me <laughs> it's like now i probably know what they were talking about yeah it was yeah, something no, I... along those lines that movie that animated film obviously meant something to them personally you know well and i got I, I i didn't appreciate that craig to be honest with you uh you know i mean that happened a month ago and it's it's happened occasionally but the real wake up call for me and, and i'll just quickly tell this story as well as a few years back now 4 or 5 years ago i was uh, in hawaii and a friend of mine has a production company over there and a and a space and in that space there's a screening room and and the local film school in Kona uses it to screen films for their students and they I was over there doing some work with David and they got wind that I was there and they asked if they could uh, 
they could show a, a print of Gorillas in the Mist, and would I be interested in doing a Q&A afterwards? And I said, sure. I mean, I'm always, whenever I can give back or, you know, whatever that looks like, I'm happy to do it. Uh, so they did. They came in, and there, you know, the, uh, uh, there were like 20 students there. They were all in their early to mid-20s, a mix of, you know, guys and gals. And, and uh, th- we watched the film, uh, which I was curious to see because I, I hadn't seen it in 20 years. I'd see if it still held up, which it did. And and that's so th- I'm doing a Q&A afterwards, and it's pretty sedate. And But, you know, you have to understand, I mean, they, they saw the movie. They appreciated it. But this was a movie that was made many <laughs> before many of them were born. You know? Born, yeah. <laughs> uh, not born, but they were just little right. kids. Little, too little. young to really understand. Uh, so I... Uh, so it's winding down, and the, you know there were a couple of questions, not nothing too. And uh, and then the moderator goes, "Oh, by the way, you may not know that uh, Tab also wrote." And then she ticked off all the Disney films, right? And you should have seen that room, dude. <laughs> it was like there were cattle prods suddenly in right. the chair. <laughs> Seriously, they were just like they lit up, and I mm. went instantly from some old dude who wrote a movie about monkeys, you know, to. Mm-hmm. rock star man and literally i mean the hands shot up and they all they, they just wanted to know and then afterwards and this is no joke you know like three quarters of them had to get selfies with me and they were all like wait till i tell wow. my mom i met you and, and that, was, that, <laughs> that was just the real first wake-up call because i it's been a quite a few years since i worked on those that the, to me, that that those movies impacted an entire generation, you know, in, in the '90s, you know, of kids growing up. Just like if I had uh, met, you know, Dean Jones, when, <laughs> you know, right, I would have right. been out of my mind to meet Dean Jones, uh, you know, at, at a certain point in my childhood. So yes. Anyway, it's very funny. Too cool. Awesome. Well, dude. Thanks again for doing this. This has been absolutely freaking awesome. Oh, I've had a blast. Listen, and I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about stuff. I mean, screenwriters in particular rarely get a chance. I mean, we just get excited <laughs> when somebody even knows our name. Are you kidding? Who knows who the hell you are? You get a chance are, right? to actually discuss some of the things you've worked on and, and have some perspective and distance from it. Uh, it yeah, it's, it's really, it's interesting, and I appreciate the opportunity very much so. Yeah, cool. Uh, and definitely, I would definitely love to uh, revisit Dogman, like when the Blu-ray comes out. Yeah, there just is so many stories that are worth telling, I think, about the experience of working with Native people far removed from the reservation and some of the challenges of that, some of the rewards of that. We shot in Mexico half of the movie, then we shot the other half up in Canada. And it was, uh, yeah, there was just there's just uh, quite a few memories that uh, would be a lot of fun to share. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that'll about do it. And damn, if that wasn't fun as all hell. And hopefully informative and maybe even a little inspiring and encouraging, too, to other filmmakers in the making. A huge thanks to Tab Murphy for taking the time to sit down with us. And equally huge thanks to you, the listener, for showing how much you appreciate us by giving us that most valuable of uh, Atlantean treasures which you possess. Namely, your time, which is always at a premium as we charge towards the holiday season. Till we meet again, I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and thanks for joining us here at the Movie Sneak. See you next time up there in those cheap seats.
reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only. 